for people that are new or old, we're doing a three-week series, and I do these sometimes, and uh, it starts tonight, and my hope is that many of you can make all three weeks, even though each one will stand alone. And the three weeks are on what are called the three characteristics that really describe reality in the Buddhist tradition. And um, with each of the talks will be a guided meditation and then homework that you can choose to do or not to do. For some of you, you've been here the last few weeks, we've had some Tibetan teachers here. Um, the three characteristics are really at the root, all the schools of Buddhism have a understanding of them. And in the path of the Buddha, there's considered to be three basic elements, and one of the elements is sila, which is ethical living, living with a reverence for life. And the second of the these groupings is called samadhi, and it's really meditation, it's the practices that wake us up. The third is prajna, or wisdom. It's what do we realize from these practices? I mean, if we get quiet and pay attention, what are the insights? What's the wisdom that arises? So that's the, these three classes we're going to be doing are on the wisdom that arises, on prajna. And um, these three characteristics, I'm going to list them to say that they're absolutely interdependent, as you'll find out. The first is called dukkha, which is commonly called suffering, but it's really an unsatisfactoriness. It's a quality of unsatisfactoriness that's, that's universal. And the second is anicca, which is impermanence, that all that incarnates, changes, dissolves, doesn't hold still. And then the third of the three characteristics is called anatta, and it's selflessness, which is that there's no inherent abiding entity that we can call self. We have an idea about self, but if we really investigate, there's no one home. That's the one that makes people crazy sometimes because <laughs> they so much want that self to be there. But we'll get there. By the time we get there, it'll all be okay. You'll, you'll have it. <laughs> So they're called dharma doorways. And dharma is the path, the wisdom, the realization. Because you can take any one of these three characteristics, dukkha, this unsatisfactory quality, our change, our no-self, and if you really wholeheartedly reflect, if you really reflect, it reveals the entire nature of reality. Any one of them is a gateway. So what we'll do is with each, um, each one we'll say what is the characteristic and how can we realize directly that characteristic and what's the gift of it? Because with each one there's a certain awakening that happens. It's very distinctive. So tonight um, is dukkha, is the dissatisfaction, our um, unsatisfactoriness is what it's called. And it's this chronic sense of wanting things different. And the Buddha says this is our basic challenge in existence is that that on some level we're not at home with how it is we're wanting something more or something different we're feeling incomplete or not at ease and it can be very subtle or it can be very extreme and most of the time when we talk about dukkha it's thought of as the extreme suffering the real anguish that people experience but I feel like it's important to say there's a real um, spectrum so one of my very good friends who's been uh, has put her heart and soul into this campaign for the last uh, number of months asked me today what I was speaking on. And when I said, oh, I'm talking about dukkha, she said, are you crazy? Are you going to talk about dukkha when, it, when most people are like really happy, <laughs> you know, and, you know, how, you know, it's not going to work. And I, and I thought that was so interesting that, you know, yes, there's probably, you know, just speaking honestly, there are probably many people here that have a tremendous amount of gladness about um, the outcome of last night. And there may be some people that feel distraught, and it's all included. But the point is that um, this investigation of dukkha, in a way, and this is what really hit me, in a way, it's more powerful and more revealing when we think things are going our way and we're temporarily going, oh, good, yeah, I'm getting my way. So when there's a bit of happiness or gladness, then if you start looking, you can detect what I call subtle dukkha, which is 
Um, well, I'll speak for myself that I was really hyper and anxious. I mean, a lot of people were telling me they were losing sleep, and I was pretty revved in these last days. And and last night was really intense. And then I and and I was really happy, you know, happy as in really glad, and many other nuances of that. But I noticed that the revness didn't go away. It was like it was still in my body to be like hyper today. Interesting. Now, this, there's a lot of research on happiness and now it's really become a subject. And what they found is that we have a happiness set point and that um, good things happen and bad things happen and they temporarily spike us so that we feel really good or really bad and we come back to our happiness set point after a certain amount of time. And what that says is that our habits of grasping or resisting, of having a complaint about life, of being restless, of not being at home, are really deep. And so that even when we get temporarily relieved or soothed or things cooperate, it's very temporary. And it, and it, and it does us well to investigate the undercurrent of restlessness that's in our system. So the centerpiece of the Buddhist teachings is an investigation of this dukkha, this unsatisfactory quality. And some people think that's really um, grim, but hand in hand with the investigation of unsatisfactoriness is an investigation of what it means to truly be free. For some of us that were on retreat for this last week, uh, one of uh, Sokni Rinpoche's mantras that he said for years, he said to himself is, be happy for no reason. What does it mean to be happy for no reason? So if I could give a title to tonight's talk, it's happy for no reason. Now that doesn't mean we can't be happy for a reason too. That's okay. <laughs> but what does it mean to be, have that capacity to just have a heart that loves life and celebrates life for no reason at all but just aliveness. That's a heart that's no longer caught in this restlessness or unsatisfactoriness that we call dukkha. So the genesis of, of dukkha is that all living organisms uh, that there's constantly pleasant and unpleasant experience. That just being embodied or incarnated means there's going to be a changing stream of pleasantness and unpleasantness no matter what. And that our conditioning when it's pleasant is to try to hold on to it. And our conditioning when it's unpleasant is to try to resist. And if our capacity to feel happy is fixed on a certain set of conditions holding in place, we're in trouble. We just won't be. We just won't be. So there's a constant trying to control experience, trying to have more of what's pleasant or less of what's unpleasant. And one of the maybe inquiries that's really interesting is, is there a sense of right now is enough? So this, we're talking about subtle dukkha, that if you just sense in yourself, is it okay just as it is right now? Can we truly accept the life of this moment? It doesn't mean we're accepting that certain people do terrible things and that we're going to sit back and be a doormat. That's not what I'm talking about. It's more radical and immediate. To be free from dukkha means this moment as it is, there's a resting in an awareness that has room for it. It's enough. This is uh, David White. He says, enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to the life we've refused again and again until now, until now. So this is kind of the subtle test of dukkha. Is there a sense of enough?
And for most of us, in some way, what's happening now isn't valued. It's like this is just a stepping stone to get to the end of the class or to get something out of something or to get to uh, Thanksgiving or to get to retirement. Or we're, we're on our way. And um, in some subtle sense that what's happening right now, it just doesn't matter so much as what might come next or what's already happened. There can be a subtle sense of becoming with dukkha, which means that we're, it's this undercurrent that we're not there yet, that there's somewhere to get, there's some way to be, there's something to experience, that the next moment will contain what this moment does not. So even in a meditation where there's a lot of what's called shamatha or stability, serenity, tranquility, there can still be this sense of that we're trying to have something happen or we're waiting for a certain experience. Enlightenment, nirvana, rigpa, you know, but, we're, but it, there's something really awesome around the corner and we're just kind of prepping for that. So it's an important inquiry in our lives whether there's this radical sense of this moment, is this enough? Rarely is it, if we're honest. Most of the time, we're often thoughts, but we're most of the time on our way. So maybe um, there's, some of you might remember that, that beautiful haiku, when in Kyoto, and the cuckoo calls, I long for Kyoto. So you have a sense of that? This is, again, we're not talking about the dukkha that many of us are familiar with when there's some real anguish about loss or failure, real not okayness. This is more subtle. So let me ask you just to take a moment and, and reflect and sense today. And sense if today there were dukkha-free moments. In other words, were there times when there was awakeness and presence and a kind of a wholeness in that moment where you were at home? And this is not to judge, but just to notice, to start getting more of a refined kind of attention to this conditioning that's in us to say, not okay. How about right now? Is there kind of in the body or in the mood something that is pulling you from here, from being here? Is there some argument with how it is, some sense of not quite right? Or is this moment enough? And this one? So you can open your eyes, but to let this be the filter for subtle dukkha, that, there, that there's a, um, an interest, a sense, is there really an at-home? Or is there some quality of being pulled away? And that's not to judge it, because there usually is. The culture is so speedy and revved and not here that it's in our bodies a lot. So to say a little bit more about the more obvious kinds of dissatisfaction or anguish um, when we're reacting to physical or emotional pain, that we're living with the inevitability of loss, every one of us. 
And of course, this is next week. We're going to talk much more about about how it's impermanent, changing, going, going, gone, and how do we find that seat of stillness and open-heartedness in the midst. Well, the dukkha is how we fight it, that there's loss and we steal against it. So there's almost a sense of, um, I mentioned this on uh, Monday with the deepening practice class, there's a sense that around the corner something's going to happen and it's going to be too much to handle, it's going to be too painful. And the truth is something will happen, we will die, we will lose our minds, we'll lose our bodies, we'll lose people we love, you know, things will happen. And so we're stealing against it. So there's some tension, some sense of of preparing for it and anticipating and worrying and planning, and it's in our bodies to tense against it. And of course the dukkha is if we're tensing against a future that we anticipate to be bad, we can't bring a wholeness of heart and awareness to this. So our conditioning is to do that. I use this little quip a lot because I think it's so perfect. The Jewish mom sending her uh, son the telegram saying, start worrying, details to follow, you know. But it's that, you know, how we're primed to worry. So, you know, Carlin, George, some of you remember Carlin has these great phrases. She said, I was hitchhiking the other day and a hearst stopped. I said, no thanks, I'm not going that far, you know. <laughs> so there's a sense of like, something's not okay about the way life is, which is, we die. And we also lose things. So dukkha is our argument with that. Um, when there is physical pain or emotional pain, we think it's wrong, that it's not supposed to be there. It's like with childbirth we've kind of get that, okay, that's a natural pain. But the other pains in our body and pains in our heart, we think that we've got it framed that it shouldn't be happening. It's in some way an assault, an insult. It has a bad indicator about who we are, that we're either not spiritual or not mature. We just shouldn't get caught in this anxiety or that shame. We think something's wrong. I know it with physical sickness myself is that sometimes I have to spend hours just trying to let go of the idea that I shouldn't be sick. Like there's some idea that what's happening shouldn't be happening and then just open to, okay, it's like this. So the signs of this more full-blown dukkha, because we talked about subtle dukkha, I think of as three main signs. And one is speeding up. We tend to, when, when things are aggravating, we, our minds speed up and our bodies and we get more busy and more frantic. That's one big sign of it. Another is mental obsession, that the mind fixates and obsesses. And the third is blame and judgment, that when we are really dissatisfied or uneasy, it's either that person's fault or it's my fault, but there's fault. And we get very caught in that, in that way of thinking about it. So we are in opposition with what's happening, we're in conflict with it. And often everybody else is wrong. It's like one guy was driving home from work and it had been a tough day and his wife calls him on his cell phone and she's really distraught because she's heard on the radio that someone is driving the wrong way on the beltway. And he goes, he says, heck Emma, there's hundreds of them doing that today. You know? <laughs> It's that one, you know. And do you know how it is when you're going through a day and you get into first one argument and that person's really a jerk and then something else happens in that... And then all of a sudden you go, wait a minute. That's been a lot of people all being jerks and being wrong, you know. And you start getting it that you're just locked in aversion. That's dukkha. Something's wrong. There was another cartoon I love, I had posted for a while, deep in Africa, a woman sitting in a hut and she's surrounded by dolls and they all have pins in them, they're the people in the village, you know. And her husband's saying, can't you get along with anyone, you know. (laughs) So the basic teaching is that if our happiness or well-being is hitched to not having pain and to only having pleasure, having people cooperate or whatever, we're in trouble and if we're and if we're always trying to control to make it be a certain way that creates more suffering 
And the metaphor is that life is like this moving rope. And if we're trying to grab the rope to make things our way, we get rope burn. Because life's going to do what it does. So the invitation is to start noticing how we're trying to control things, to notice how we're trying to manage our experience and start having the courage to pause and instead of control or judge, seek to understand what's happening. Not to judge our experience, but to understand it. Before I went to my first Buddhist retreat, and this was my early 20s, I had many, I was lived with a lot of waves of depression, seasons of depression, I'd be anxious for, you know, I'd feel a lot of anxiety, I was very obsessive, I, I went through bouts of binge eating, um, and I had this idea that I had a lot wrong with me. I just had this idea that there was a lot of neurosis and, you know, behavioral, I just locked into this idea a lot was wrong with me. And I remember my first Buddhist retreat, one of the first talks was on dukkha. And the basic gist was, it's universal that every living organism has this habit of grasping onto what might give pleasure and avoiding what's unpleasant and then having that proliferate and getting locked into these moods of being a depressed self or an anxious self. It's just universal. Doesn't mean that we can't wake up out of it, but it's universal. It's our conditioning. And I remember um, feeling this amazing wave of relief that it wasn't so personal, that my anxiety or overeating or depression, it just was like, it was dukkha. And everybody had dukkha. Different flavors, but it was dukkha there was something about it not being so personal that gave a lot more space for me then to not be so stuck in the very things that felt so bad. Subsequently, you know, I've talked to a lot of people and many people have found that, that when we can really get that this is just our universal conditioning, this kind of uneasiness. You know, I found it very interesting, I didn't know this until a couple of years ago, that the Pali word for dukkha has to do with a wheel of a wagon being off balance, being out of its groove and so the wagon just doesn't really roll right. And it's like when we're in this conditioning of of dukkha, when we're caught in feeling like a self and an off balance self, it's just like that, it's that wheel is off. And that the practice of mindfulness bring us into alignment. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The main way that that dukkha becomes entrenched is what's called papancha, or proliferation, which means that there's a chain reaction, that we have a sense of, let's say we want our partner to treat us in a certain way, and they don't. And so that's unpleasant, and we react, and we withdraw, and then there's the thinking of, you know... Who, how that person's wrong or how we're wrong and fear of being undesirable or not interesting and then more anger and then a feeling of shame and then deficiency and because we've withdrawn then they withdraw and you see how it just kind of somersaults, it just spirals that papancha is the kind of solidifying of dukkha and the core of it is a sense of a self that's not okay that ends up being the core of the dukkha. So the thing to begin to understand is that if we can catch the chain reaction, if we can sense of, oh, having these thoughts, thoughts are speeding up, having this feeling, making this person wrong, speed, judgment, obsessive thinking, if we can catch the flags, it won't somersault. It won't proliferate. Some of you might remember, this is one of my favorite um, favorite stories of uh, dukkha. It's its own version. So many of us are dealing with insurance companies. This one's about an insurance company where a man uh, 
makes a report and then they ask for additional information. He says, in response to your request for additional information in block three of the accident report form, I put in poor planning as the cause of my accident. You said in your letter I should explain more fully. I trust the following details will be sufficient. I'm a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new six-story building. When I completed my work, I discovered I had 500 pounds of brick left. Rather than carry them down by hand, I decided to lower them down in a barrel attached to the side of the building. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, and loaded the brick into it. Then I went back to the ground and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. You will note in block 11 of the accident form that I weigh 135 pounds. Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming down. This explains the fractured skull. Slowing slightly, I continued my ascent, stopping when the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep in the pulley. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold tightly to the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. Devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel now weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer you again to my weight in block number 11. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I again met the barrel coming up. This accounts for the fractured ankle. (laughs) The encounter with the barrel slowed me enough to lessen my... my injuries when I fell onto the bricks. Fortunately, only my toes were cracked. I'm sorry to report, however, that as I lay there on the bricks in pain and unable to stand and watching the empty barrel six stories above me, I again lost my presence of mind and let go of the rope. (laughs) This is entitled Unknowing When to Let Go. (laughs) Which leads us to how we work with dukkha. Because basically the first noble truth is understand suffering. In other words, recognize it. And this is going to be our assignment, is I'm going to just invite you to start really tracking, okay, so is there dukkha right now? Is there subtle dukkha, like a restlessness, like wanting things to be different, or not really right here? With subtle dukkha, you can almost imagine it with your posture. Is there kind of a leaning forward? Or is there like this, you know? Or is there really enough right here? Understand, to stand under. So sometimes it may be that there's subtle dukkha. Sometimes you're understanding, you'll recognize, okay, I'm really in reaction. You know, this person said this, and I'm thinking that, and then I'm doing that. And you'll catch that, you know, kind of like this guy, it's just one thing leading to the next, to the next, and there really isn't a presence of mind. So the teaching really is that we begin to notice what's happening and we let go of the reactivity. In other words, okay, let go of the next thought of judgment or let go of needing to go say this to that person. And there's really a willingness to pause and arrive in the one place where we can find some space and some wisdom to pause. Now, the second noble truth is, is really just that, that there's a letting go of our reactivity and this willingness to just be right here. Now, one of the main challenges to that is that there's an underlying assumption that many of us have that um, unless we keep vigilant and we keep trying to do and change and there's kind of a striving, drivenness that our lives won't be the way they're supposed to be. And I want to name that because that's one of the beliefs that keeps on fueling dukkha that there's something wrong with my life. So when you do that inquiry of is this moment all right? you can almost say also, is this life okay? That doesn't mean it feels good, it doesn't mean it's according to all your ideals, but is there a space in your heart that can say that you accept your life as it is in this moment? 
Okay, another little story. This is uh, written by a Zen teacher, Ed Brown, who's uh, the founder of the Greens Restaurant in San Francisco. And he um, said he's, his whole life story came into focus when he realized that he had been, been spending his whole life trying to make the perfect biscuit. Fabulous cook. And he'd been spending his whole life trying to make the perfect biscuit. So just to listen for a moment. He says, when I first started cooking at Tassajara, I had a problem. I couldn't get my biscuits to come out the way they were supposed to. I'd follow the recipe and try variations, but nothing worked. These biscuits just didn't measure up. Growing up, I had made two kinds of biscuits. One was from Bisquick, and the other was from Pillsbury. For the Bisquick biscuits, you added milk to the mix and then blobbed the dough into spoonfuls on the pan. You didn't even need to roll them out. The biscuits from Pillsbury came in a kind of a cardboard box. You wrapped the can on the corner of the counter and it popped open. Remember that? Then you twisted the can more open and put the pre-made biscuits on the pan and baked them. I really like those Pillsbury biscuits. Isn't that what a biscuit should taste like? Mine just weren't coming out right. It's wonderful and amazing the ideas we get about what biscuits should taste like or what a life should look like. Compared to what? Canned biscuits from Pillsbury? Leave it to Beaver? People who ate my biscuits could extol their virtues, eating one after another, but to me these perfectly good biscuits just weren't right. Finally, one day came a shifting into place, an awakening. Not right compared to what? Oh my word, I had been trying to make canned Pillsbury biscuits. Then came an exquisite moment of actually tasting my biscuits without comparing them to some previously hidden standard. They were weedy, flaky, buttery, sunny, earthy, real, as as Relka says. They were incomparably alive, present, vibrant, in fact, much more satisfying than any memory. These occasions can be so stunning, so liberating, these moments when you realize your life is just fine as it is, thank you. Only the insidious comparison to a beautifully prepared, beautifully packaged product made it seem insufficient. Trying to produce a biscuit, a life, with no dirty bowls, no messy feelings, no depression, no anger, was so frustrating. Then savoring, actually tasting the present moment of experience, how much more complex and multifaceted, how unfathomable a thought, a feeling, ants crawling on the ground in sunlight. As Zen students, we spent years trying to make it look right, trying to cover the faults, conceal the messes. We knew what the bizquick Zen student looked like, calm, buoyant, cheerful, energetic, deep, profound. Our motto, as one of my friends said, was, looking good. We've all done it, trying to look good as a husband, a wife, a parent, trying to attain perfection, trying to make Pillsbury biscuits. Well, to heck with it, I say, wake up and smell the coffee. How about some good old home cooking, the biscuits of today? Handle each ingredient with sincerity and wholeheartedness. The results will take care of themselves. Savor them. That's a lovely story, isn't it? So really powerful teaching is in the subtle dukkha that there's usually this undercurrent that something's wrong. And if we don't recognize, as the Buddha said, if you don't see that, you don't catch that that's there, we're like that wheel that's off balance. Our wagon will not roll smoothly, gracefully, happily. That undercurrent of something's wrong really... um, obstructs the present moment and there's no way to be happy for no reason there's just always some sense of a clench you know Chogyam Trungpa says as long as we are trying to figure out how we can escape from our present situation we can't notice much about it only when we feel that this is it this is how it is right now without any clutching towards something different will our intelligence really come alive? So another way to say that is if we can let go of this kind of striving to have the moment be different, we actually create the space for our natural wisdom and our natural love to blossom. 
It's that busyness and the judging that closes us down and obscures the what we are. So how to, instead of running away from what seems unpleasant, just stay. And I know with myself, if fear comes up, I first, on some level, try all my meditative strategies. It's like on some level I'm doing something to kind of get it to chill out. And then I go, oh yeah, that's right. It's not about controlling, it's about being with it fully and feeling it fully. So on something, some part of me is just inviting and saying, okay, just be here. But there's still this place in me that thinks it shouldn't be there, I wish it was gone, and maybe by letting it be there it'll be gone. Do you know what I mean? Like we're, we're amazingly, get, it gets to more and more refined level of trying to manipulate our experience. So, you know, be good humored about that. Because it's very, it's very much against our conditioning to just say, okay, let the fear be here. And yet, it's possible if, that's, if there's this kind of wisdom that knows if we just relax the fight, if we just say, okay, it's like this right now. And it takes a kind of faith and a kind of courage that we really don't resist. That we really kind of become that space that absolutely says yes. That in those moments where it's okay if it never goes away, there's that level of surrender. There is an opening or an awakening to what we really are. We rediscover this vast space, this vast presence that truly has room for what's here. So this is the gift of, of dukkha, that it's inevitable that there's going to be this unpleasantness, unsatisfactoriness, restlessness, not liking, wanting it different. The gift when there's this choice to stay, to understand and not get away, is that a sense of identity shifts and we're no longer this small self struggling against something. We re-inhabit a vastness and a tenderness, a natural compassion. I get the question a lot because this is such a basic teaching in, in Buddhism too. Uh, notice how we're resisting or fighting and instead of let proliferating and keep going in that really to pause and allow and open and I get the question a lot of but how to open to how horrendous and how intense the suffering is in this world like won't it just absolutely just rip us up you know when we really try to open to it and there's a, a I wanted to read you something that Wendell Berry is one of my favorite poets wrote He says, it is the destruction of the world in our own lives that drives us half insane and more than half. To destroy that which we were given in trust, how will we bear it? There's something in our nervous systems that register the insanity and the pain and the horror of what is happening to our earth. It's like you cannot be walking on this earth with a nervous system with some sensitivity and not get it. And so we either like completely cut ourselves off or it feels really intense. And similarly, you can't be, have a sensitive nervous system and not sense how the cycles of violence and the fundamentalism and the separations have become so aggravated. I think that's why this election became so so meaningful and important. There's such a longing to find some healing. So what would happen? Like, so Wendell Berry says, you know, that how will we bear it? And really what he's pointing to is if we don't let ourselves feel what's here, in other words, if we don't open, we can't discover the openness and the care that lets us respond with intelligence. It's like Chogyam Trungpa said that if, you, if you're trying to control it, if you're trying to manage it, if you're trying to numb yourself from the suffering, it just consolidates the suffering. 
the only path to freedom from dukkha is this presence. It's the only pathway. This is Galib. He says, for the raindrop, joy is in entering the river. Travel far enough into sorrow, tears turn into sighing. When after heavy rain the storm clouds disperse, is it not that they've wept themselves clear to the end? When we talk about opening to dukkha, whether it's a subtle dukkha, sensing the restlessness and pausing and saying, oh, I really want to be home. I don't want to be living in this small, restless, anxious self. I want to really be here. Or whether it's the deep dukkha. Either way, when we open into presence, we'll find a caring, a tenderness. And so that there's, there's really two gifts of, of this Dharma doorway I want to mention tonight. And one is, if you're willing to bear it, in other words, not do the habitual ways of controlling things, but really pause and open, you'll discover a heart that's immeasurably tender, a huge compassion. Pema Chodron, um, in one of her books, describes it this way. She says that spiritual awakening is frequently described as a journey to the top of a mountain. We leave our attachments and our worldliness behind and slowly make our way to the top, and at the peak we have transcended all pain. The only problem with this metaphor is that we leave all the others behind, our drunken brother, our schizophrenic sister, our tormented animals and friends. Their suffering continues unrelieved by our personal escape. In the process of discovering bodhicitta, and that's the awakened heart that we discover by being present with dukkha, in this process, the journey goes down, not up. It's as if the mountain pointed toward the center of the earth instead of reaching into the sky. Instead of transcending the suffering of all creatures, we move towards the turbulence and doubt. We jump into it. We slide into it. We tiptoe into it. We move toward it however we can. We explore the reality and unpredictability of insecurity and pain and we try not to push it away. If it takes years, if it takes lifetimes, we let it be as it is. At our own pace, without speed or aggression, we move down and down and down. With us move millions of others, our companions in awakening from fear. At the bottom we discover water, the healing water of bodhicitta, the awakened heart. Right down there in the thick of things, we discover the love that will not die. So this is the first of the three characteristics that we all, every one of us, experiences the, the fear and the sadness and the loss and the reactivity. And it becomes a Dharma doorway when instead of playing out the reactivity, we choose to understand, to stand under it, to pause, to open, to be present. Now this doesn't mean if we've been traumatized and we're feeling, uh, you know, an uprising of of trauma from abuse, let's say, that we say, I'm going to stay and feel it and open to it. That might not be wise or compassionate. There are many ways sometimes with a lot of support, sometimes very gradually, that we do this practice. But ultimately, that's the path. The path is a dedicated presence, an incredibly kind presence with the life that's here. So one of the gifts, as I mentioned, is compassion. The other gift I want to mention is what we started with, which is we discover our capacity to be happy for no reason. We keep on kind of solidifying the grooves if the only way we can be happy is if we have this accomplishment or this feeling of health in our body or this person paying attention to us. And when we don't play that out, when we pause and rediscover the space of presence, we discover the space that naturally takes joy in being alive. As long as we're doing the conditioned pattern of how we try to, I'll be happy if only this, we'll be continuing to chase after things. We'll never come home. 
So this is a, this is a path of homecoming. And um, I'd like to do a closing meditation just to give you a little bit of a taste of how you might practice at home, on your own. Be a short meditation. Often we take a pause like this as we're closing. I'd like to invite you to really let yourself come home into this pause. You may let the eyes close and just in some way give yourself permission to relax. Just to breathe, maybe take a few full breaths. And then with a curiosity and a care, just to inquire and sense if there's any place of dukkha that is asking for your attention right now, either right here tonight or today, yesterday, this particular time of your life. And it may be that you're feeling really alive with the events of the national events and that it's a more subtle kind of a a dukkha, kind of a restlessness an excitement that doesn't have a sense of where the still center is and for others there may be real anguish that's here tonight a major loss in your life some sense of your own failure So whatever level it is, just notice if there's a sense of somewhere that you're divided from your own heart, from presence. And bow to that as your Dharma doorway. Just honor that this is is universal conditioning playing out through this body-mind. It's not your dukkha, it's just the pain or the fear. There's a Sufi saying, overcome any bitterness that may have come because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each one of us is part of her heart. Each one of us is invited to discover that vastness and tenderness that can hold the pain of this world. So whether it's subtle dukkha or intense, each one of us has a certain measure of this cosmic pain. And there can be a willingness just to be with. And so feel that right now you can take these moments to, instead of in any way resisting, making it wrong, this fear should go away, this situation shouldn't be happening. Notice what happens if in a cellular way you just say yes. That doesn't mean that you like it, but that you agree to the actuality of what's happening. You just open to how it is, like the mother of the world that opens to the realness of the pain in this world. what happens, and it might help to put your hand on your heart if it's more intense dukkha, if you offer a very kind yes to the currents of whatever expression of dukkha are moving through you right now. The more intense, perhaps, the more kind the yes needs to be. Let this be a gateway for you. The Bodhisattva prayers, may this awaken my heart and mind.
And the pathway it awakens us is by a courageous presence. Yes, yes, yes. And that means letting go of the thoughts of what's happening and feeling it in your body very directly where it lives in your throat, your chest, your belly. Feel it in the subtle body, the energy body. Enough. These few words are enough. Not these words, this breath, if not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to the life we've refused again and again until now, until now. So I mentioned homework, and uh, it's always optional. But um, because this is a three-week series and we're really, um, those that want to, this, I'd like to invite you to really explore it. They're on our website, there's the Dharma, uh, under the audio part, there's Dharma tape library. There are talks on the three characteristics that you can listen to to kind of um, make um, this more encompassing. Each week you can use the Dharma doorway of that week at, to deepen your reflection. So during the week to um, let in your meditation, both formally and informally, to scan. Is there subtle dukkha? In other words, is there that kind of not at home feeling? A little bit off balance, a little bit on my way. Just scan and get familiar with it. No judgment, just notice it. Or is there more extreme reactivity? like? really something's wrong, the more blatant. And explore what happens if you pause and even for a few moments experiment with just in that stillness saying yes really kindly. Okay? Next week we'll be exploring the impermanence, the absolute changing quality of impermanence that when we really begin to recognize can be radically liberating. Um, So I invite you to come next week if you can make it. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.